Chapter 4 Possible and Necessary Such a deeper expansion of social welfare, seeing to, to that all citizens, or as many as practically possible, grow up genuinely healthy and emotionally well-developed, is both possible and necessary. <coughs> yes, it is possible. It is possible due to the new circumstances of the internet age, the robotic revolution and the sheer growth of production and knowledge of the global economy. As the economy continues to grow and with the expansion of technology society simply has uh, and with the expansion of technology, society simply has much greater opportunities to employ people to work with subtler, more psychological and more long-term oriented yet deeply meaningful tasks. We know that the costs of one kid gone rebel in the rich world are immense, seen over a lifespan, not entering the labor market, taking up social costs, police work, courts and prison, causing harm to other citizens, reducing general security and causing civilians and security costs to rise, making the public afraid and thereby more prone to dumb, fear-driven politics, and so on. Lately, economics, economists and social work researchers have increasingly argued that such bad kids should be, should be singled out early on and get the extra support they need. A few years of support teacher salary is a bargain in comparison. That is not what we are talking about here. We are talking about something of a much greater magnitude it, and ethically on less murky waters than singling out four-year-old four ruffians. We are talking about universal measures, guaranteeing everyone more care, support and attention by redesigning all of our major institutions to improve the quality of human relations personal development and mental health. I beg to move. Everybody should have the benefit of talking to a kind, listening professional therapist while growing up. Just think of how the number of molestation would drop, how kids would treat each other better, how family life would, would improve. Everybody get to learn to meditate both with mindfulness and other techniques so that one can handle stress and get in touch with, with one's own emotions. Everyone should get a good gym coaching from early age so that they grow up to have fit bodies, good bodily awareness, positive body image, relaxed body language and healthy habits. Everybody should be trained in dialogue and get the chance to participate in public debates or deliberations. Everybody should get a year off once in a lifetime to go look for new purpose in life and make tough life decisions under professional care and support in a kind in the kind of secular monastery. Everybody should be nudged and supported to consume both healthy and sustainable food that prevents depression 
and support long-term societal goals. Everybody should be trained in social and emotional intelligence so that conflicts arise less often and, when they do arise, are handled more productively. Everybody should have a proper sexual education from early on, knowing things such as how to tackle early ejaculation, tensions in the vagina, sexual rejections, making approaches in a charming but respectful manner, how to handle competition and how to handle pornography or sexual desires that diverge from the norm. Everybody should get some aid in managing the fear of death and facing the hard facts of life to help us intuitively know that our time here is precious. This is just a very rough outline so far. The point is that we need to shift the whole fabric of social reality. Making the mental and emotional background noise of anxieties and fears less prevalent and making everyday life in general saner and kindlier. This is not a superfluous fluous or self-evident claim. In no existing society does a corresponding level of welfare exist. Not in the Swedish system, not in the nice boarding schools, not in the gross national happiness country of Bhutan. If everybody did have a support structure resembling the one brief outlined above, all according to best practices, do you think that you would be more or less afraid of walking down the street a dark night. Do you think that you would be more or less likely to hurry past by a person in need? Would you feel more or less secure in sending your kids off to school? Do you think the integration of immigrants would be less or more uh, will be more or less hindered? by prejudice and cultural tensions would you more or fewer would more or fewer people become terrorists would have average person feel more or less compelled to buy school clothes and cars to prove their social status would people build stronger or weaker local communities would mental and uh, physical health be better or worse would society be more or less prone to violent overreactions during times of crisis and change? Would class distinctions be aggravated or leveled out? And would the hidden injuries of class be deeper or would they heal more easily? Would the average family be more or less harmonious or and healthy? The most reasonable answer is that on average society as a whole would be safer, saner and kinder and that these effects would accumulate over decades and generations until a new and higher equilibrium of happiness and lower suffering is reached. People would experience a much higher degree of freedom and contentment. Life would be a lot more fun and exciting too, since much fewer people would get stuck in their lives, limited in their development by stress anxieties or broken relationships. There would be more human bonds 
trusts and opportunities. This in turn would save humongous costs and let much more people spend their lifetimes in productive service of themselves and others. So the whole idea of the listening society is possible because after its initial event investments, it saves a lot more than it spends. It saves the increasingly pressured welfare system. I will say it again, in case you missed it, because people really seem to have difficulties with getting this point. The listening society saves the welfare system by being much more efficient and socially sustainable than our current system, thereby being more affordable in the long run. What we are talking about is the deliberate long-term management of deep, complex social-psychological issues. These deeply-seated issues affect all aspects of society in a great variety of ways that are difficult to predict precisely. But the effects are pretty easy to spot on a general level. Think about it. If the average person would just be more socially well-developed, healthier and kinder, would not society as a whole benefit immensely? How about the economy, the labor market, or the efficiency of democratic governance? A deeper welfare, a listening society, is possible because we live in a post-industrial age and because we are now beginning to have the knowledge to execute it successfully. The new, new social technologies are being made available and the knowledge about how to continuously improve upon implementation of such social technologies is growing. The listening society is possible, moreover, because of the foundation created by the prevailing meta-ideology of green social liberalism. In a country like the US, where universal healthcare, abortion and gay rights are still real issues, you don't get to have a sta stable ground to build upon. A country or uh, other society must have reached a point in development of its political discourse in which a solid majority supports liberal, social and green values, allowing the, these to be used as a common ground to start from. This is a much greater extent. This is to a much greater greater extent the case in the Nordic countries. Once it has become a no-brainer that we want a free, fair and sustainable society, and once the steps of uh, first steps towards this end have been achieved, it becomes apparent that all the current parties, all of which are de facto green social liberal have become stuck as movements. They no longer have any long-term visions for society, no utopias or further goals worth mentioning. This is an ironic turn of events. We have in fact never had a greater potential to develop new forms of everyday life than we have today, than we do today. The resources and the knowledge at hand are simply staggering compared to the only 20 to only 20 years ago. The problem for established political movements is that they all build upon ideologies that were founded during the industrial era. These ideologies are largely being abandoned in practice. The social democrats no longer 
truly want socialism and so forth. The industrial age ideologies are all bankrupted. They have all become pale, polite butlers of green social liberalism. This leaves plenty of political and institutional leeway for new powers to emerge, offering an update upon the new political equilibrium of green social liberalism. Look, even if the socialists got everything they wanted, life would still be full of inequalities and misery. Even if the libertarians got their way, most people would not be free. Even if the Greens got their way, society would not be sustainable in a deeper sense. By offering a bit of a bid for a green social liberalism 2.0, one begins to build a new layer of society on top of the modern society and its project of progress and enlightenment. It brings up deeper, more personal and authentic issues that constitute the very core of how society functions. Such social, psychological and existential issues are often what lie under the surface of superficial societal problems that we habitually think about and debate. More and more people have begun to take interest in asking deeper questions about life and society. People long for more depth and authenticity and the inspiration that can come from answers in these domains. There is a demand for a deeper kind of politics and thus there is power, political power for, this, for the taking. This new layer of welfare breaks the limits of modern society. It begins to transform the very quality of human relations. Nobody else is doing it, so whoever starts first gains a sharp competitive edge. That's what makes it possible. And yes, it is necessary. But green social liberalism 2.0 and a listening society that it seeks to put into effect are not just long-shot possibilities. Yes, they are, as I have argued, a moral imperative. And they constitute in an institutional necessity. We are quickly moving from one kind of society to another. And failure to adopt a more efficient welfare system is likely to have very negative consequences. Our current form of liberal democracy and welfare deserve all respect, all the, dis all the respect in the world, but they are insufficient. We must help them to evolve. If we do not, our society can be expected to face increasing problems, even to the point of collapse, as our old answers and institutions persistently fail to tackle the challenges brought by the new era. The cultivation of a deeper layer of welfare is necessary because the current system and its political visions are increasingly bankrupted under the globalized internet age. The problem is no longer to get food on the table or to manage the successful extrac extraction of natural resources or the protection of cars and medications, although these problems may come back as results of ecological ecological collapse. What is lacking in our day and age is the ability for people to manage complex problems 
that require patience, knowledge, oversight, creativity, mutual trust and friendly cooperation across sectors, scientific disciplines, cultures and subcultures. In a phrase, the management of complexity. Or, with a term we shall get back to, we require greater collective intelligence. Similar social psychological demands are also increasing for everyday choices, such as consumption and how we spend our time amidst all the distractions. It even holds for personal relations, where new forms of love, family friendships, acquaintances, cohabitation and mixed work personal relations are mushrooming all over the world. We need people who are much more socially and psychologically functional for this new society to run smoothly, for this new society to run smoothly in all of its greatest beauty. As a population, we are not ready to face up and live in society that we ourselves have created. We are out of our depths. Or, as Robin Keegan, the Harvard adult development psychologist, has suggested, we are in over our heads. So basically, for people to function well as participants in the new economic landscape, the demands for psychological well-being and good social networks have become greater. A deeper welfare is necessary, one that increases our average psychological health and well-being are and thereby our functionality in this bizarre new global society. We need to be stable, flexible, mature ver versions of ourselves because we spend our lives playing on an increasingly complex and multidimensional arena where social skills and the quality of our relations make all the difference. Collective and personal meaning making is another big part of this. People need to be able to create their own life stories, their own narratives about the world, to find their own meaning. Life conditions no longer force you to go out and plow the, plow the field to feed your family and society no longer offers and or forces upon you a coherent worldview written by the gods. Although we still of course, inherit, inherit the norms of society, its language, etc. It is a major challenge for people to stay sane in this world full of contradictions, temptations, distractions and stressful yet divisingly vague demands. No meaningful story is given beforehand, unless you are part of some religious, religious sect but even these positions are increasingly precarious. Not only must we stay sane, we must find and keep direction in all of this. We must stay active, even as our activities are rarely necessary in any direct, concrete sense. If we fail to do this, we can easily land in socially and economically precarious situations. Many of these Challenges require us to develop higher stages of personal development, as described in the second part of this book. Consider the changing nature of professional, network, of professional work, 
the freelance part of the labor market rose and the re relatively stable structures of the industrial age companies melt away along with their employments which means that the average person must think and act much more independently in order to thrive and be productive and no this does not happen because of a neoliberal conspiracy pulled, pulled on us, starting with Thatcher and Reagan, but because of the internet revolution, robotics and the post-industrialism, and the mechanics of globalization, which of course do deserve their fair share of criticism from the left. We are leaving behind the economy in which you were defined by your profession. Increasingly, people are defined and acquire their social value through a wider array of identities, including civic, personal, aesthetic and existential ones. This has two major implications. Firstly, people will need much more emotional support in order to grow into maturity and to be able to play with the many possible and confusing identities. Instead of taking them too seriously, are clinging to the one job description as and can be crushed if one is suddenly out of work. As mentioned in the parallel discussion above, this necessitates a deeper form of welfare that supports self-knowledge and rich life beyond the labor market. Secondly, new m the many new professional roles need to be invented to match the transformation of labor as robotization and digitalization progress. New jobs must be created, to speak that horrid language of our current leadership. Many of these jobs can and should be concerned with the meaningful activities involved in creating a listening society. A huge amount of work is needed helping kids, designing public spaces, supporting life stage transitions, improving upon diet, organizing citizen deliberation, evaluating and developing all of the above, and so forth. So, the listening society is necessary both as support to the citizen and as a new source of meaningful, productive work opportunities. Moreover, the listening society is necessary as a competitive edge on the global economy. The religions that will be able to create the most fertile soil for the blooming of human relations and well-being are so also likely to have much higher productivity in the post-industrial economy. It is well established that things such as flow state and intrinsic motivation are conductive to creativity and performance of complex tasks. Confident, happy people who can manage more abstract and long-term goals and who are more self-secure and thus better in at taking in negative feedback and adjusting to new information will simply outcompete other people in the scramble for ca capital and central positions in the new world economy. This is a cynical part of the argument, admittedly, but an important one. It is not just that the listening society is kinder and more ethical. The listening society is, plainly, more powerful and digitalized global economy 
then is the capitalist liberal democracy. It saves so much tax money, it boosts enterprise, entrepreneurship and innovation, it attracts talent and it attracts capital in different forms and it grows human and social capital. We have seen similar, similar ma macroeconomic effects with the HDI rankings, Human Development Index. Human development drives economic growth. In the internet age, a deeper and more complex form of human development is highly likely to drive a deeper and more complex form of economic growth. The deeper welfare system is necessary because without it, you will be outcompeted by other, more listening societies, where citizens truly do thrive. Luckily for the future of humanity, this dynamic sets the world system on a positive feedback cycle towards greater sensitivity and care, rather than a race to the bottom. How it connects to everyday life What people don't realize is that everyday life could be much more lighter and happier if we build a saner society. Just looking at my own life, there is so much suffering around me that it has that has to do with the psychological development of people and the quality of their relationships to another. I'm sure you can think of corresponding stories yourself. When my parents were still alive, I would visit my mother, my mothers every now and then. After their divorce, my father's life stagnated professionally and personally. As an alcoholic, he survived surprisingly long on coffee, beer and cigarettes. My mother's new husband built a house by the seaside, and they were doing well. They would always be kind and polite, and we would discuss matters of life and society over dinner. Even if the neither of them even if neither of them went to college, they would follow my work from a at a distance. My mother's husband would ask why I was so eager to change and develop society when things were after all good and well these days. I had three brothers on my father's side. Two of them died at 39 and 45 respectively. respectively. As children, they had, they had both been abandoned by their mother, who suddenly left them, and my father for another man. Both of them drank a lot and smoked, so did so-so in school even if one of them was quite intelligent and learned Portuguese during a month spent doing charity work in Angola. And the other one was good at getting work done as a carpenter with his own company. They both left behind children and chaotic family relations. Would their stories have turned out differently had they not spent their lives with a vague sense that their mother didn't love them, or if their there would have been steady support offered early on, if they knew how to talk about and deal with emotions. I can't help but wonder. But what about my third brother? I've, I haven't heard, heard from him for long. His new wife made him abandon his daughter, my niece, at, an age, at age 14 and move abroad. He won't say hello, 
but these days he sometimes writes a short Facebook message messages to her for Christmas, as if nothing had has had happened. What makes a person so afraid and dependent that he would abandon a lovely teenage daughter if his partner asks asks him to, and so socially inept that he would then send mixed signals about the abandonment and what would and what would a wife what would make a wife so protective and jealous that she would ask something like that would that she would ask something like that of her husband could these things be different what are the long-term social costs of such such behaviors human costs my mother knew my mother's new husband had two children for himself from a previous marriage, a daughter and a son, both in their forties. Last I heard of them, they were both rather unhappy in their lives. The daughter had a stroke at a young age and recovered physically, but was often depressed and anxious. However, she took care of her kid, and he would play video games and had no friends living on a rather unhealthy diet. I don't know what happened to them later. I hope things went well. My stepfather's son had the strangest wife. She would have multiple she would have multiple partners lie to him, steal things and show abusive behavior. But he didn't leave her. It went on for it went on and on for years. The family would never speak about their feelings. They simply did not know how to. Nobody's to blame, really. But even as I advanced into so in social class and got to know highly educated and otherwise successful people, I would see suffering. Once I realized that all of the smallest, smartest humanity students, the ones who wrote about advanced postmodern theory and loved French intellectuals, were struggling with severe anxieties. Had it been today, they would no doubt all have been on pills. And when I finally, rather late in life, figured out love and relationships, I would notice how very confused and broken all of my partners were. Each one would seem happy and functional, but soon enough they would tell me their secret, the self-doubt anxieties, periods of depression, how much it hurts to be a woman and never be pretty enough. How much it hurts to be a nerd who isn't respected in the arenas of everyday life. How much it hurts to be the less interesting and successful one. Or to be emotionally stunted, being unable to feel love and care deeply for, our, for others. Of course, at the top of society and here and there all over the place, you find people who don't know as much suffering, who simply seem to have lived relatively protected and well-functioning lives. But at the top, there is confusion. But even at the top, there is confusion and existential emptiness: drugs, sexual sexual addictions, materialism, vanity. You know the drill. Could more of these people much more? Could more of these people be much more psychologically healthy? Would we create uh, and reproduce a society 
in which the average human life experience is more emotionally satisfying and spiritually productive. I could go on, but the point I want to make is simply that you can hardly find one single cause or person to blame for what seems to be holding us back in our lives. What we can do is to look at the totality of these interconnected life experiences, at the fabric of hurt and bliss. Most people don't see it. They don't recognize how brutish and cruel life is even in the most developed, con- most developed of countries. Things are fine nowadays. Right. Now imagine if the average person in all of these interconnected stories have been actively supported to deal with the challenges of life. It may not have saved everyone from suffering hurt and degradation. But yes, everyone would still have a better chance to live dignified life and to treat others better. We would live in a less broken world. Think about it, given that so many people live in such broken worlds. Should it surprise us that we cannot handle transnational challenges such as climate change, globalization, poverty and the disruptive effects of technological innovation? Am I wrong to ask why we are letting all of these things happen without any serious effort to change the situation to to detriment of people's lives and society? We are doing nothing or much too little because we haven't yet developed society to a degree where there are safety nets, common knowledge institutions that deal with these subtler, more sociological sides of life. An empirical example. Mediation in schools. All this is fine and intuitively it makes sense to believe that a more listening society would change life, would change the life courses of many or most people, letting them develop into a healthier, more and whole citizens. But these examples are anecdotal, just single stories. What are the empirics of the matter? Is there any research that can hint us toward what the listening society might look like and give us an idea of how it improves people's lives? There is, lots, but let's keep it short. My favorite example is the mediation in schools. Basically, you can teach kids to mediate in schools and you can and you see not only lower rate of bullying and sick, sick leaves among teachers especially, but also better school results and most of all better psychological health and the development of more pro-social behaviors. This subject has lots of studies, but nothing that would, would assess the difference if you compare kids who haven't who have gone to 12 years of daily mediation with those who haven't the research also lacks different differentiation between different teaching styles and progressions maybe you should start with the 3 minutes with the 3 minutes for 6 year olds Although one's recent groundbreaking studies from the Max Planck Institute 
suggested that different forms of mediations may show different kinds of benefits. Mediation is almost always thought about as a binary question, yes or no. In fact, of course, there is a world of difference depending on it's thought, if it's thought well, if the general progression is right, and which method, mes- methods are used. Mindfulness, vipassana, zen, listening to sounds, etc. The point of mediation in schools is of course not to inspire woo-woo beliefs or anything of the sort, but to improve people's lives and society at large. It it is not a matter of turning kids and citizens into quiet, complacent little Buddha statues, but a matter of sociological and cultural development. It works through two major mechanisms. The first mechanism is that people learn the skill of self-awareness, claiming their own minds and not overreacting. That is, of course, useful in all walks of life. The second mechanism, and perhaps the most more important one, is that it changes your mental and emotional st- state then and there. So if the average kid spends an average of 15 minutes being guided in calming her own mind every day, she will be a little less anxious and aggressive that same day. Hence, on the average, she can be expected to treat her friends and rival 12-year-olds a little better during lunch break. Now imagine that it's not only her, but her full class of 35 people, which is, by the way, probably about optimal, as reducing class size has proven to be one of the least cost-effective way of improving the quality of education. Who all get this subtle nudge? Would not the whole social climate be somewhat uh, softer and kinder? A little less tense and stressed? And now imagine that this goes on for 12 years. Do you imagine that there might be accumulation? During that time, her school experience teaches her a lot about what to expect from life. Will the social processes by which she makes friends, handles conflicts, learn to trust have been affected? Will it affect how much she feels she can trust people, how much disdain she she should have for the boys, how much time she will spend intruding instead of studying? Will she know herself a little better? It's not an uh, implausible hypothesis, not at all. Here's a relevant quote by Amanda Machado, a young teacher in San Francisco who wrote in The Atlantic. Quote, Schools have also begun experimenting with the practice and discovering that its techniques can help its students. When a school in New Haven, Connecticut, required yoga and meditation classes three times a week for its incoming freshmen, studies found that after each class, students had significantly reduced levels of cortisol, a stress hormone. 
in their bodies. In San Francisco, schools that participated in a quiet time, a transcendental meditation program, had twice as many students score proficient in English on the California Achievement Test than in similar schools where the program didn't exist. Visit Visitation Valley Middle School specifically reduced suspensions by 45% during the program's first year. Attendance rates climbed 98%, grade points over averages improved, and the school recorded the highest happiness level levels in San Francisco on the annual California Health Kids Survey. Other studies have shown that mindfulness education programs improved students' self-control, attentiveness and respect for other classmates, enhanced the school climate and improved teachers' moods." That pretty much sums it up. What these studies do not take into account are the possible and accumulative long-term effects as more people get a longer and more refined, more individualized and scientifically supported practice. Unfortunately, our governments haven't begun to take these things seriously. Just like medieval government didn't take reading and writing skills of the population seriously, until some Protestant countries began to outrun the other European powers as literacy rose. Or, like a lot of people in Africa don't see the importance of washing hands, making efficient sewer systems, brushing teeth and using condoms. At least this is what foreign aid schools scholars often find in their ethnographies. We simply haven't advanced to, to that stage of thinking, a stage where you see that the inner development of a person of each person is intrinsically connected to the development of society as a whole. For fun, let's splash some more studies that have shown the social, psychological and medical effectiveness of mediation. I've abbreviated the references, but you can all find them if you like. Even if some of the cited studies are a bit old, there has been an exponential increase in the number of mindfulness studies in scientific journals, which is one but far from the only form of mediation. The last few years it has really taken off as we speak. We are getting several new peer-reviewed studies per day. This means we're, we will probably have much have a much more clearer picture soon. Here's a graph I borrowed. It's still from the source, American Mindfulness Research Associations, and it's a graphic about mindfulness journal publications by year from 1980 to 2015. And it shows the number of publications. You see that it grows exponentially, exponentially during the last five years. Now, if we don't yet have the major studies about cumulative effects on groups 
that stack up over time, it should be obvious that there is an ex interesting field here. How much disease, suffering, depression, criminality and social misery could we prevent? Prob probably a lot. The costs are extremely low and the effects quite wide reaching. What would happen if we had serious scientifically driven mediation teachers designing the best possible programs for schools? Probably a lot. Now ask yourself what would be the effect if millions of people had 12 years of this kind of training and they interact in society? Would there be changes to the overall patterns of such society? Would the effects stack up over generations? What if your grandmother, your dad and, all, and you all get to grow up in a somewhat more emotionally nourishing environment? Would that affect your life? Probably a lot. I have friends who study m meditation in schools and other institutions from a more critical perspective. Meditation is certainly no magic bullet. You have to consider the social psychological aspects. What happens if somebody feels pressured to mediate, to meditate in a situation where they are not comfortable? Or when someone gets frustrated because the other seems to experience it as more pleasant than oneself. And sometimes it has been shown meditation seems to cause anxieties rather than reduce them. All of this is not different from, say, gym class. In Sweden alone, 30,000 kids are treated in hospitals each year from physical injuries in school, and other 60,000 from spare time sports injuries. That doesn't mean that sports are bad. And mathematics cause causes a lot of anxieties and frustrations. But it doesn't mean that it should be excluded from education or society at large. It just means there are problems we should be aware of and deal with as we go along. Meditation in schools is one of my own favorite examples, but it is far from the only one. For instance, giving older kids access to simpler forms of talk therapy can dramatically reduce depression and suicide rates. This was tried in a provincial town in the northern Sweden recently. The depression rate dropped from 9.5 to 1.5% in two years. Or you can make people run at maximum heart rate for a few minutes and their, their wellness and immune system will be boosted for the entire day. Or you can give people more nuts berries and green vegetables, which reduces long-term risk of depression and facilitates healthy aging. Or you can make people participate in games in which they share and cooperate, which increases their propen propensity for pro-social behavior. Or you can develop sexual education dramatically, which makes people less prone to sexual violence and more likely to form productive relationships. Or you can use carefully and professionally guided forms of massage and other non-sexual touch to increase oxytocin levels in the brain and 
make people treat one another better and thus uphold social orders in a more egalitarian manner. Or you can change the surroundings in the inner cities so that they can they promote meetings between strangers and generally feel less stressful. More lush, green, often does the trick. You could make a list of studies around all of these topics as well. The point is, uh, we as a society have not yet developed to a stage where we where these deeper issues, issues that affect all aspects of life and society, are part of our general social, economic and political awareness. In terms of money, such long-term investment of probably su- properly supported by science can be extremely cost-effective. And yes, it can boost the economy as the average person gains more trust, better relation- social relations and becomes happier. The great economist Amartya Sen coined the term development as freedom. He meant that human development and civil liberties should be drivers to lift populations out of poverty. Psychological and social development can and will lift us out of spiritual and emotional poverty.